Welcome to the Art Grind Podcast. This is a podcast run by artists for artists, where we talk about what it means to be one. I'm Tun Mian, the producer, with our hosts Sophia Kayafis and Marshall Jones. This is being recorded between our many jobs and side hustles. We bring you in-depth investigations into the lives of artists we admire and the stories behind the creative journey. So stay on the grind while we fill your mind. Hello, Art Grind listeners. We have an amazing interview for you today. Um, Marshall managed to track down Cassia St. Clair and speak to her about her new book. Yes, you guys may know her as the writer of The Secret Lives of Color, one of my very favorite books about color to come out in the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years. It's so good. She was such a delight. And we had this idea to kind of ask about a bunch of colors. And then we decided, well, you guys can just get the book because it's such a great book. So the, the interview is more about the psychology of color and what color, how it affects the way we see, how the we see affects what we see in color and a really fascinating interview. Yeah, she's and, so curious. She's yeah. really curious and just loves investigating the relationships of meanings and facts and history and culture. And you'll see how connected you are to all these colors around the world, all these colors you see. But yeah, hopefully we're priming you to buy this book. I'm very excited to read it yeah. myself. <laughs> Don't just listen to the podcast, buy the book too. All right, guys, thanks. Enjoy the interview. Well, I've read your book, I believe, twice. I've listened. I listened to it on audio. Did you read it on the audio book? You did. Yeah, you did a we good job. It. We recorded it like um, two days before the first lockdown in London, so it was just when things were beginning to get really weird. And I was in this recording studio, and like every time we had a break, we were like, "God, oh, it's really weird, isn't it? Feels like we're like going into a dystopian universe." Yep. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, it was weird. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Because like we were quite a year ago on Audible, right? Some, yeah. 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 That's, yeah. yeah okay. So we recorded, I think, um, like very beginning of March, twenty twenty. Okay. Um, and then it came out maybe a month later. Uh, by which time we were definitely in lockdown. So yeah, uh, it will always remain very memorable to me <laughs> that recording time. And the lockdowns were pretty serious over there too, right? Like they were. Yeah, I mean, not as serious as in Italy and France where, you know, people were getting fines every time they stepped out of their door and you, you know, they were really sort of policing how far away from your house you went. But, you know, you're only allowed out for an hour a day at points um, and stuff like that. But uh, I, I think different places handled it very, very differently. So it obviously felt very strict in London, um, but I'm sure people living in, in Paris or, or Rome were like, <laughs> you, you English with your, with your, your lax lockdowns, you know nothing. <laughs> and uh, and you, you were able to write another book, right? During lockdown? Well, I mean, that makes it sound very impressive. Actually, lockdown came at not the worst time for me because I'd done a lot of research um, for my next book. And then, you know, you, you have to kind of have an enforced period of self-lockdown anyway when you write a book. Um, mm. Obviously, having proper lockdown <laughs> meant that I really had no distractions at all. <laughs> um, I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't see any friends. <laughs> so it's sort of what I did, what I would normally do, only times 100 with kind of a lot more intensity from the outside. Uh, but but yeah, it was definitely, <laughs> it, it, came, it came at a good time for me. It was lucky that it didn't, you know, happen during the research because that would have been a 
I don't know what I'd have done if it had been during the research period. I just would have been able to do the research and everything would have had to, have, um, you know, been extended by a year or, or two or well, two years now, I guess. So, I, you know, the timing for me, if it had to happen, it was it was lucky that it happened when it did. Hmm. Do, do you feel more productive in that time because you, you couldn't go anywhere? Yes and no. Like I, uh, I created a school day for myself. So I, you know, I sort of timetabled my days and kind Red of really, gender. yeah, really like stuck to it. Um, and, and that was really useful for me until about December. Uh, and December just broke me because we, we, we were sort of told that we were going to have Christmas with our families um, and that we would be able to have that time. And then, of course, you know, the next wave came along and we weren't able to have Christmas. And I'm usually very last minute with my Christmas presents. I'm quite disorganized. But this year, because I've been so excited about it, you know, the tree was up on the 1st of December. I bought all my presents in October and they were already wrapped. It was <laughs> such a big thing and like such a big song and dance about it. And then literally two days before we were meant to go and see my sister, uh, they were like, no, we, you know, you, you're going to have to remain in, in place. Um, um, it was devastating. Yeah, it was a it was a real it was a real bummer. So from like mid December to to mid February, I was like, boo. <laughs> I, I think we all were. That was a long, hard winter. That, yeah. that I would not want to yeah. go through again. Yeah, and of course, as Brits, we're obsessed with the weather, and the weather was terrible every day. You're like, oh, still miserable. It's been so much rain. <laughs> <laughs> What do they say about British? It's like, if, if you don't like the weather, wait an hour or something like that. Isn't that the phrase about it? I mean, usually, but not this, not, not this winter. No, no, no. <laughs> We're all in, all in on, on cold and rain for months. <laughs> so, so what's the new book about? So actually it's a bit different for me. It's about a journey, um, an automobile journey that took place in 1907. Um, and, uh, it was essentially proposed by a French newspaper to test this newfangled technology, the automobile, because no one believed that it was a viable transport technology. People thought that, you know, the horse was going to um, be there forever and it'd be this combination of horse transport and trains and the automobiles would just remain these kind of playthings for the for the super wealthy um, because that's what they were used for. Uh, it was uh -huh. still very expensive and, you know, uh, there are these amazing pageants, you know, wealthy people would kind of gather all their automobiles together and in race courses and they'd be decorated with flowers and there'd be these kind of weird car pageants. Um, and in 1907, the, the year that this race took place, you know, the economists said very, they said, that this is the year that we can firmly declare the triumph of the horse. The automobile has shown that it isn't worth anything. Anyway, mm. this French newspaper took a bet and they were like, we think the automobile is, is, is the future. So to prove it, we propose a race from Peking, now Beijing, um, to Paris uh, across two continents. Um, anyone who wants to sign up, you need to be at the start line at the beginning of June. Who's up for it? And about 40 people put their hand up. And I think about, well, five cars made it to the start line in the end and four of them made it to Paris um, but when you look at the the obstacles you know there were no roads uh, for much of the the route um, you know there were there was no petrol stations obviously so um, through part of the the route um, uh, fuel had to be taken by camel and sort of t and dropped in strategic locations in the Gobi wow. Desert that they then had to track down these like fuel dumps. Um, and it was just, it was a mad, mad, mad journey. And it's incredible that 
of the five cars, four made it. And the fifth, the one that didn't made it, uh, it was like a little three wheeled like motorcycle. It wasn't really a car. It was, you know, a, a car in name only. It was only six horsepower and it made it two kilometers out of um, Beijing. And then that was that was the race over uh, for, for them. Um, but the other cars, they made it um, in two months, which is astonishing. Wow. And, and my book uh, looks at the race it looks at the impact that it had and um, you know it was reported globally you know there are newspapers in Australia talking about it rural Ohio Canada uh, France Italy Spain the whole world was obsessed with this race and it really had you know a, an impact in, in making people believe that the car was 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 the future. Mm. So how, how many horses made it across? <laughs> so many horses <laughs> but, but, but it, what's really horrifying is that these um, descriptions of, of the cars going through the Gobi Desert and they're taking the kind of traditional trade route and um, which was usually um, taken by by camels and, and oxen and things like that and the the route that you can tell where you're meant to go you can you know although there's no official road you can you, you can tell where you're meant to go because the the path is lined by the carcasses of the animals that died along the way so oh. they were kind of driving along this alley of bones essentially for, for a couple of days which must have you know <laughs> really been quite quite something wow <laughs> yeah that's amazing Horrifying. yeah yeah, I love the way you write about his, historical things like in the in the color book. It's like you you make it, you know, there's all these little um what would you call them? Like um salacious details about the pigments and things yeah. like that that you bring into a historical context and it's also like you feel like you understand a little bit more about psychology, you're learning about color. I really loved how, how you wrote that book. It was, I, I wrote, I've read that, I think twice, I was saying, yeah, so. Thank you. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like what I want to do is um, like a lot of digestion. I feel like it's my job to read everything, like the interesting stuff, the boring stuff, the, you know, random scientific papers, you know, everything that I can, everything that I can. And then I kind of try and digest it. And I want my books to be full of the kind of detail. I want people who are reading my books to be that kind of irritating friend where you're all reading together and they keep on nudging you and be like, did you know, did you know? I want my book to be full of those details that you just want to share with the people, you know, people around you, even strangers, like nudging people and being like, did you know this? Did you know that? Um, I think that's what I what I hope to to bring. And I think quite often people feel like history is boring, and history is it's not. It's like it's gossip. It's um, fascinating little tidbits. And I think you, sometimes you have to search for that, but but they're there. And I love particularly when you find great details about topics that quite often seem like a bit mundane or a bit ordinary. You know, like I actually had a, a bit of a job persuading um, agents and, and, and editors to take on the secret lives of color. And the same thing happened with textiles. You know, people were like, oh, textiles, you know, who wants to know about that? And I, I feel like it's a little bit the same with, with, with cars and, and travel and how we think about cars. Yeah. You know, I grew up in a car age. I feel like my world map is kind of defined in a way by the car when you think about journeys and how you can get from A to B. And, and that's always what I'm trying to do is, is take those these things that we take for granted and find kind of historical nuggets that make us see them in a new way. Yeah, that's really amazing to me. I don't know, taking a deeper look at things that you you don't normally think of. Did you did you ever guess that so many artists would be affected by your book? Did you were you thinking of that when you were writing it? That painters would be reading it going, yes. <laughs> 
Well, it's funny, like like I said, I had real difficulty persuading people to take this book on because I didn't feel like it was a niche subject at all. When I was proposing it, when I had the idea and when I was talking about it to agents and editors, I was like, colour affects a lot of people, designers, painters, artists. They're like, who isn't interested in colour? Um, and they're like, no, but it's a really niche topic, you know, and I was just like, I, I don't think it is. And hopefully the book has done well. I think it's done better than my editors hoped. So I, I feel like it's proven the point. But I, it's really wonderful that people do find a lot in it. But what I really actually enjoy is quite often people come up to me and say, oh, I, you know, I loved your book, but I wish you'd included this color and then tell me some amazing story that I completely missed. And I feel like the book is 75 colors long or has 75 different shades in it, I now feel like it could be 150 shades, 150 yeah. pigments, because there's so much more out there. And that's one of the, the joys of quite often, you know, before coronavirus, when I was doing live events, I'd give my spiel, I'd give my talk, and then people would come up and tell me all these other stories. And I, I love that. Well, this podcast is uh, mainly for painters. We have various artists on, but Sophia, myself, and uh, the, other, the other person who hosts sometimes, are all painters and we just talk about painting on the show and you know we all teach at various schools and stuff and your book was everywhere like a, a lot of art students were reading it I was reading it it was really uh it really had a big impact on the, our small little niche market just being like <laughs> figure painters in New York City <laughs> they, they were all reading it so <laughs> right <laughs> I love that <laughs> so so do you mind if we talk a little bit about color I could ask you a few questions no, please go ahead. Great. So I thought in your in in the Secret Lives of Color, you had a great initial description that uh, oddly enough, I don't think a lot of people know about just how the eye see colors with like cones and rods. And could you could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So when I um, was first thinking about color and how I wanted to to structure the book and, and think about. Um, you know, the introduction phase, you know, obviously how we see color is, is so important. You kind of almost can't talk about color without um, acknowledging that the, the, the way we see it, we, the way we perceive it is different. And we have these kind of different mechanisms um, and you have the physical aspect of it. So that is the, the physical structure of the eye. Light enters the eye and the information is absorbed by these cells in the back. There are two different types, rods and cones. And the rods do kind of the heavy lifting, the black and white, and the cone cells absorb the, the sort of the color wavelengths. That information that is gathered by these cells is then processed. And it's the interaction between the kind of physical structures and what's happening in our minds and the kind of processing we do on this kind of raw data that is, I find so fascinating because although we might all be seeing the same red, and of course it's very difficult to know if, if we are, the way we experience it will be very different depending on our culture, on our own personal experiences with reds. Artists that we particularly love who might've used it in this way or that and, and the resonance we, we have. With the introduction, I wanted to talk about the kind of the physical way we see color, but also really early on, say kind of a flag up that colors, it's not a kind of flat experience for all people at all times. You know, when you think about how people have tried to map color, how people have tried to pin it down, um, almost like language, it's constantly evolving, it's constantly changing. And you, you need to really have sort of a high tolerance and a high allowance for change. And that was one of the reasons why I wrote the book in the way that I did is kind of character sketches, because I feel like it's it's such a vast topic, you'd need 
dictionaries of color you need hundreds of them to capture everything about all the you know every story every understanding of all the colors across all cultures so this is only ever going to be a snapshot so yeah that was it was very important to me to kind of acknowledge the kind of scientific side but also then dive into the cultural side which um, obviously I find fascinating and I think is where so much of the meat of the book is yeah I found that so interesting um like how like you were just saying, you know, it's debatable whether we we would all see the same red. And to me, that is endlessly fascinating. Like I can be teaching a student and say, you know, maybe mix a red that I think it is for them, but it might not be the same red that they're seeing, right? Like we would, based on, like you said, culture and maybe even physiognomy to some degree or what you're, you know, personal attraction to certain things, we could actually color our experience a little different, right? Absolutely. I I feel it'd be really interesting. uh, Something I wanted to do when I was writing the book actually is to kind of didn't have the technological expertise, but I wish I could create like a website and I would love people to, um, to ask people if they could kind of pinpoint what they think is the perfect red or the perfect blue or the perfect green and get them to create it on a screen. And I think what they'd end up I think the perfect reds and the perfect blues and perfect greens would be so different you'd have a real variation even though it should feel quite standard and I think it'd be influenced by things like the tools that you were you that your parents used to show you what red was when you were younger like if you had Fisher Price toys and that was your perfect red and your perfect green I'm sure that'd be different to if you came from another country and you had a different brand of toy and your parents were showing you this is a perfect red this is a perfect blue you know Mm. whether they were physical objects or whether you saw them in a book whether you had paintings of them I think there's there's so much of this kind of formative experience that goes in with our understanding of red and personal experience and the emotional resonance different colors have for us yeah and it even makes me think of like the applications like just we're looking at a computer screen right now there's certain kind of blues that are being shown to us on our screens, different pixels mixing together. And the red is a certain way, this kind of fluoro pink, fluoro yellow, a bright neon green, like that a text would come up, you know, or it's blue if it's been read, it's been delivered. Mm. I don't know, but it's a certain kind of blue. Could you could you mix that? I don't know, It, I can see it in my head <laughs> so easily. And that is blue to me, mm. you know, but I, I think in that way, it's a whole, it's a whole another layer of conditioning to, yeah. The color and I see it when I see contemporary paintings a lot actually these more modern paintings that kind of be- become a little bit more graphic they really embrace mm. the color palette of a, of a screen in many ways Absolutely. it's what we look at all the time 90 yeah. percent of our image consumption I would say is on a screen yeah but why be tethered if you know if, if you can create colors on a screen using light there's no way you could create um, or, or, you'd, or you'd really struggle to create in another medium. And that's what people are expecting. You know, I know that I'm very guilty. I wake up in the morning and I kind of, you know, hazily with my eyes half open, open Instagram and, and flip through and you, and you get kind of exposed to hundreds of thousands of different hues, really bright, really vibrant, um, different matches of colors and, and combinations. And that is really dizzying. And we're, we're so lucky in a way. I always think how lucky I am. I'm exposed to that many colors all the time because I can, you know, in previous eras, colors were rare, particularly if you didn't come from a certain social circle and you couldn't, you know, couldn't afford pigments and dyes. Um, you just wouldn't have had access to these colors in the same way that we have now at the, at the touch of a button. But it's so interesting to contrast that against like, like nature, like back then mixing, mixing a really beautiful red or green 
it was it tied you to the material to to nature in so many ways whereas mm -hmm. now you think of green and it's a pixel yeah I don't know. Yeah. Marshall, I was talking to you about this earlier. Do, do you think you can help me ask a question? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was thinking in the same way when you were just talking that certain colors were reserved for certain classes of people, right? Like it was seen as a an outward sort of indicator of your social status, right? Absolutely. So, you know, lots of different cultures have um, codified these kind of ideas into into law, not just in the West, although, you know, in, in the book, I, I mostly talk about the Western associations. You know, most people, I think, in the UK and in America and in Canada and Australia, if you think of like, what is the color that's associated with royalty, they probably say purple. And, and that's because one of the pre most preeminent dyes of the ancient world was Tyrian purple, which was made from a type of, of mollusk that's native to the Mediterranean. Mm. And mollusk uh, was used to dye cloth. And the cloth was incredibly expensive because it took so many of these mollusks to make a single ounce of dye. You had to have 200,000 mollusks to make an ounce of dye. And oh. the cloth was more expensive than gold. And so it got used by royalty. It got used by the most powerful people in society. And as more people wanted it, you know, they killed more and more mollusks and the mollusks got rarer. And they got so rare that you, you find like accounts of, of Roman emperors bemoaning the fact that they can't afford to buy cloth in this color. Um, it's just, it's too expensive. Wow. Uh, yeah. But in, even if, if say someone from a lower, a lower class system came upon, had some of that purple fabric, it would be illegal for them to wear it, right? Like it, there was laws against certain certain things of that, right? Absolutely. I mean, what you see is that these laws are passed again and again and again and again. So in the UK, you find um, uh, statute after statute after statute trying to codify this kind of relationship between social class and colours, which suggests a couple of things. First, that it really mattered to them. But secondly, that these laws weren't being obeyed. There's no, you know, if they were being obeyed, if people were really sticking to it, there wouldn't be any need for these laws to be passed again and again and again uh, mm, with exactly the same way. So, you know, either it was being broken all the time or there was a real fear that it was being broken and people were kind of circumnavigating these rules. Um, but it was clearly also very important. In the West, generally speaking, the duller, earthier colours, the colours that looked more like dirt and earth were uh, reserved for, for, for more low status people, particularly in agrarian economy. So particularly people who worked with animals and, and in the countryside and more saturated and vibrant hues were, were reserved for fire orders. And it was really very strict. Different colors could be worn by certain orders, but only as a trimming. And then you go up a, a social order and they're allowed a, a bigger surface area of this color, of this dye. So it was really trying to make very clear the social status of the individual for observers so that a person walking down the street in theory could look at someone's wardrobe and immediately know um, what social position they were and maybe even what, what trade they were in and, and things like that so it was this idea of having this very clear very obvious social order and color was vital to this language this understanding and it's we still do that a bit today like a rolex watch or something just to symbolize I think about that with like my brother works on watches. He's like a watchmaker. And he says that like, you know, now 
everybody has iPhones, so you don't really need a watch because you have a phone in your pocket, but an iPhone's not like a high status good. So he was saying like, you can't even find Rolexes now because they're getting bought up at such a rate and they're so expensive on like the secondary market just so people could still flag some status, you know? Yeah, it's a very human thing. And it's 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 interesting that color is so much a, and has always been so much a part of that. We really use color to signal to other people um, information about ourselves, about how we see ourselves, how we want to be seen very crucially. And it's really interesting to see that that's always been the case. And we're still doing that now. It's, it's not codified in law. We, we don't have to. We could dress however we wanted. But generally, we dress in a quite tribal manner. And we do use, we still use color to signal information about ourselves. And, and you had some interesting things in the book about uh, gender as well and color and how that the, the sort of pink blue dynamic has flip flopped in recent recent time. I had no idea about that. Yeah, it's really interesting, actually, because my dad was born in 1925 and he was born before the kind of the flip. And his partner sadly um, passed away at, at Christmas time. But you know they're in their 90s, and they both walk. They used, both used to walk with sticks. And her stick was blue, and his stick was pink. That was hmm. the way round they had it. Because for him, pink doesn't seem like a very feminine color. He was like, yeah, the, the pink stick's mine, <laughs> the blue stick's hers, and that felt very natural to him because it was before that that period when the color sort of roles reversed. And he loves pink. <laughs> When, when did, when did that happen? Why did it happen? Cause I mean, I know when I was a kid in the toy store, it was so segregated pink, blue, you know, very hard lines. When, when did yeah. that, did that change happen? Yeah. So as a child of the, I, I'm a child of the 1980s and, and pink was very much for girls in, in the 1980s, but the, the switch kind of happened around the mid century, you know, particularly after the second world war during the wars, women had been in America and the UK, particularly in the UK, because all the, the men had got in soldiers. Um, you had women who'd um, gone to work in the fields, had managed their own money. And then suddenly you have all these men returning from war and you have this explosion in consumer goods and you have this real sense that you need to bring society back together women need to go back into the home so that men have jobs and they're you know returning from war shattered they, they need their role to be reinforced women need to go back and that's when you really see pink become very much associated with women but what I find very interesting is in the um, late 1950s and 60s when you first when you when you really see this kind of solidifying of, of pink being for, for girls and, and blue for boys the pinks you very often see in popular culture are really strident bright vivid pink so if you think of Marilyn Monroe in her amazing pink frock in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes mm-hmm. you know it's not a kind of it's not a girlish pretty soft pink it's really strident and it's you know quite often the, the women who were most associated with pinks were very strong women you think of um, Elsa Schiaparelli and yeah Marilyn Monroe is, is a great example and also um, Diana Freeland classic example you know they were they loved pink but these were not kind of girlish pinks in any way mm-hmm. why do you it's so interesting this like talking about this like we give things so much power as humans that aren't in inherently like, you know, you couldn't really inherently give a gender a color or anything. And I remember like pink being, being that by 
corporations and things. And then punk rock subverted it, you know, and it was a very powerful color in punk rock, that bright neon pink. And you think like, what, what is the, the impetus to give colors and things so much power and not just see them as a color? I, I, I feel like it's just what humans do. I feel like it's what we've, we've always done. We've always wanted to create meaning and we've always wanted to communicate and almost any tool that we can use to communicate, we, we use. And color is, is such a, a natural one. You know, you literally colors can come out of the earth. When you look at the earth pigments that we used in cave paintings and, and red ochre, they were traded really early on. You can see very bright, vibrant examples of red ochre have been tra traded over vast distances by early, by the earliest societies. These things really mattered to us. What is it in the human DNA? What is it about color? What is it about the interaction between the two? I, how could you answer that? But I, I love that. And I love that it's still propelling us even to this day. People are still trying to find new colors. People are still trying to perfect colors. You know, like you were saying earlier about colors on screens versus kind of traditional colors, I guess, non-digital colors. We're still trying to create new meanings and we've got this striving to communicate. And I think color is part of that and always has been and, and always will be. Hmm. And, and color in paintings, I talk a lot about temperature when I talk about color hmm. to my painting people, students, I guess you could say. And they realizing that it's contextual. Well, this looks red because hmm. it's between two neutral grays that feel hmm. cooler. So this feels a little bit more red. But if you take it away and you put it between two other colors, it doesn't maybe feel as hot. So like this kind of warm, cool complexity subverting the meaning. And like, I, I don't know, like it makes me think of how my relationship to color when I'm hearing you talk about this, like my personal, like why am I wearing this green hat? Mm -hmm. Why do I have this green shirt on? I'm looking at the room. I love color. I have color all over my house. I didn't really realize that. And it's certain colors that I keep repeating. And I do like pink. You guys were talking about pink. I have a neon pink hat well it's actually like a light baby pink hat mm. and it says it's a girl on the back because <laughs> people are constantly mistaking me for a man all the time I wear makeup but there's something about the way I walk around I don't know excuse me sir so I have <laughs> I have a hat that says it's a girl on the back like at like a baby reveal or something and I wear pink ironically mm. so I'm taking what I think the culture wants me to understand I am a woman and I'm saying okay yeah I'm a woman Mm. That's how I, that's what pink means to me. I don't know. This is, I'm, maybe I'm oversharing. <laughs> no, I love it. That's exactly what I was talking about. It's a communication tool. You're kind of using it to communicate something about yourself, but you're also kind of, you're also kind of, it feels like from what you're describing, you're also using it to say something about society in the way that you have to kind of reinforce this, this, this kind of, this gender identity as you walk down the street I think color is very playful and we we enjoy being playful with it mm. yeah. I love that yeah and it's like symbols in a way like um I was reading a lot about semiotics it's something that I don't understand but I've been desperately trying to understand because I think it's very powerful and then thinking about color within that and they they this one book started talking about like sports teams a team went from green to red and was winning more games. And then a team went from white jerseys to black jerseys and got more penalties. Like all this kind of weird, <laughs> just psychological heaviness around color. 
you know, it's a box of crayons or it's a whole way of communicating that I find so fascinating because you, Sophia, in your pink hat, it's communicating something to people without you having to use words. Mm-hmm. And, and Cassie, I think that's why your book was so powerful. Why I had to read it twice is because it wasn't just about color. It's about people and how people communicate and what people hold dear and their, sometimes their misguidedness and sometimes they're, you know, all those things wrapped up. It's mm. fascinating. We, we give these colors those, those meanings that, you know, although there's an argument about whether colors have meaning just independently and whether we all feel the same way if we all look at the same color, you know, it's clear that a lot of it is, is cultural. So, you know, like I said, in, in the West, purple is the color of royalty and we look at it and we, we associate, we, certain images might flash up in our head and we might make, make, us, make us feel a certain way. But if you go to, you know, to China, for example, and you ask about the color of royalty, they'll say it's, it's yellow because that's part of their culture and heritage and, and yellow is the color most associated with royalty for them. And so it's incredible that we have this kind of, it's exactly like a language where some of it is shared, some of it is separate and, and we all join together to give these meanings. And then they have such power and weight over us, like the sports teams, you know, that get more penalties or <laughs> win more. Uh, we're kind of entering into it and it, and we shape it and it shapes us. It reminded me, I've heard people say that People who don't have a certain word in their language for a certain color don't see that color. Do you do you believe that's true? Do you think that they kind of go hand in hand? I, I, I don't think so. I mean, there's been lots of debate over this for decades. It's a very tricky subject because I think the when the it first emerged, it was very much bound up with ideas of race and superiority and the ideas that different languages, you know, that people were able to see different colors when their language developed and I think that's you know that's just when you start thinking in that way that's just like a whole can of can of worms but I think I think the colors are there I think the the meanings can be different but you know if you look at say um the Russian language they split blue into two different categories they've got um, one word for kind of light blue and one word for dark blue Mm. does that mean that we English native English speakers don't see blue in the same way or do we receive it differently because we don't have different words for light blue and dark blue i i I don't think so i I think we probably see the colors in the same way as russians we're just using language in a different way and language tends to reflect what's important in a society and so maybe societies that don't have that many words for color like it's not they see color differently they're just like they're just like, why, why are you English speakers so obsessed with color? We're, we're using, you know, they, they still use it. They still care about it, but they're just thinking about it in a, in a slightly different way. But it's really hard for native English speakers to see across that gap and to understand what they're seeing because we're simply not sharing the same language. We can't talk about it in the same way. I feel like we're talking kind of oscillating between these two things of like the phenomenon of sight mm. and then the way that the brain organizes information, mm-hmm. organizes just fodder. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just color, it's value, it's mass in space. And then we give it meaning. I mean, it's just crazy. It's so crazy. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I feel like yeah. you can keep writing books about this, keep going deeper and deeper, <laughs> connected with the language, go back to the color. How do we see, how do we, how do our eyes move around an image? based on what color I don't know it's just so it goes so yeah. deep with it 
and also because when you're trying to to write about it and you're trying to kind of you know you have to you have to sort of talk about color in a certain way but obviously at the same time you're saying this is quite loose this is liable to change different people might see things in different ways but at the same time you're producing a physical book about it and so when you're illustrating when you're talking about a certain shade you want to you want to illustrate it but if you're saying this shade looks different to lots of different people and then you find yourself in the ridiculous position of then talking to a graphic designer and being like well what color am I going to have on the page to talk about this this color that we don't we may not even know what it looks like anymore maybe it's a historical color and we, we simply don't know but we've got to illustrate it somehow so we've got to we've got to kind of conjure a color up and decide between us us two people or maybe three people what this color should look like on the page and then we're giving it to people and then the, the color that we've chosen in a in a back room somewhere then becomes the you know this, this is, you know that that is ridiculous I had this discussion when we were designing the book and it felt ridiculous because in a way I wanted the book to to say that these are cultural phenomenon and you you can't pin them down it's um, more expansive yeah they're untamable and and then found myself <laughs> duly choosing the perfect ultramarine <laughs> to have on the ultramarine page which was ridiculous <laughs> And then obsessing because, you know, you, you, once you've chosen the perfect one, you know, it's then going to look different because it's going to go to different printers. The printer for the U.S. publication is not the same as the printer for the U.K. publication. The second print run had a different printer from the first print run. It's, it's chaos. And, and that is the way it should be. <laughs> so th- there was this thing that also that I read in your book that was um, in the Middle Ages, it was illegal to mix color. Am I getting that right? Yeah, so it was quite a taboo in the West to mix colours in certain ways. It was sort of seen that there was this kind of cultural weight around colours being pure. And then this also was reflected by guild practices, so for for dyers. And you had different guilds who were specialised in dyeing different colours. And it became kind of codified by guild practices. And so if you then wanted to create a mixture, say green, which is most easily done by mixing yellow and blue dyes that became kind of a taboo because if you're if you're a yellow guild dyer you don't want to tread on the blue guild dyer's toes by you know adding so it became kind of a bit of a taboo that isn't to say people weren't doing it but quite often um, it would have to be outside cities or there were kind of kind of almost semi-legal carve outs and you can see this real disapproval in medieval Europe for people who are doing this mixing but people Mm. were still getting upset about it you know centuries later when Isaac um, Newton discovered by using two prisms to first prise apart white light and then put them back together that created a real scandal because it had always been assumed that pure white light was kind of a gift from from God and was literally pure. And the thought that it could actually be broken down into a a spectrum, a colorful spectrum, and then be put back together was really shocking for people. And again, it kind of broke a taboo and people didn't want to believe it. They had always previously assumed when people had used prisms and, and produced a rainbow, they'd always assumed that it was kind of a trick in the glass. They hadn't realized that the, the glass was revealing something about white light. So fascinating. It was, it was almost like seen as unnatural or something too. <laughs> What's the most crazy color that you know? He was saying something about mummy brown, so it must be like people. Yeah, I mean, mummy <laughs> brown. They're one worse than that. <laughs> yeah, mummy brown is, is the grossest. It's the one when I, you know, if I'm giving a talk and there are, there are kids in the audience, mummy brown is like the absolute surefire winner. And I can see all the <laughs> the parents like horrified and I'm like yeah dead people (laughs) 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 it's revolting 
you know, that's a really great one. But quite a lot of colours were, were discovered by accident. I love telling the story of Mauve, this kind of the first aniline dyes, because this poor guy, this young scientist, was trying to create the cure for malaria. And he completely failed. But what he created instead was this incredible purple dye that went on to really democratize color. And suddenly people were wearing all sorts of bright, vivid hues that they'd never had access to before and were now suddenly quite affordable. He went to his grave never having discovered the cure for malaria, but he created a rainbow instead. So, you know, that's kind of incredible. Wow. That's such a, that's such a great story. Uh, so in it, it, it is quite probable that... Um, Indian yellow is cow urine, right? That's Yeah, so it's really tricky. It's one of those quite elusive color stories. Actually, one of the color stories that I love are the most elusive ones because I feel it kind of proves the point Mm. that I wanted to make in the book. But yes, so Indian yellow um, used to arrive in the form of kind of yellow, dusty yellow balls to the UK and to France and to various other Western countries from India. And, you know, it was merrily being used by by artists, but they didn't really know where it came from. And in the 19th century, they wanted to sort of finally investigate this, finally track down the origin of of, of this colour. And they sent someone off and he reported that it came from these poor cows that were only fed mango leaves. And then their urine was collected and boiled and purified and then eventually, you know, created into this kind of powdered pigment. And and this was Indian yellow. It was then believed for a long time afterwards that maybe this was a complete joke, that this had been a joke that was being played on the British. Um, Obviously, there was a lot of conflict at that time. Um, between Britain and, and India, who was, you know, a colony at the time. And it was thought that maybe this man who'd been sent out to investigate, who was he was Indian, had written this story to kind of poke fun at the gullible British. But you can see a sample of these yellow balls in museums. There's, you know, there are samples in, in Australia, in an Australian museum, and also in the, in the UK, and I'm sure in many other places as well. And um, it, it does seem that they are, in fact, cow urine. But, you know, the practice is, has obviously completely died out. <laughs> and, and so we'll, we'll never know for sure, because it doesn't seem to, you know, although this was quite a profitable trade and the pigment was really beloved, there doesn't seem to be much more documentary evidence of it, um, apart from this kind of investigation in the 19th century. And I actually, I got in touch when I was writing the book, I got in touch with um, an expert um, in Indian miniature paintings. And he was like, yeah, it's, we kind of don't know. <laughs> and I was like, great. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very satisfying ending to my story. Thank you. <laughs> so this is a question that I, I ask a lot of guests. It's sort of famous on this podcast that I thought it'd be fun for you to weigh in. And it, it also speaks to your book about how elusive color is. Do, do you think, cause you know, out of all the artists we pulled, everybody has a different answer. Do you think that ultramarine blue is a warm or a cool color? I think it's a warm color. You do? Yeah. T- uh, tell us, tell us why, if you have a reason. When I think of ultramarine, I think of these paintings of the Virgin Mary, the kind of classic Renaissance paintings, which, you know, as much as they're kind of odes to the Virgin Mary, they're almost also kind of odes to this this pigment, some of them, because they were using ultramarine, it was so expensive, and they were using, you know, vast fields of it to kind of glorify the Virgin Mary and to glorify their patrons. And there's this whole kind of realistic, uh, ritualistic uh, use of, of the pigment. And when you you look at these kind of fields of ultramarine, it's it's about passion. 
And you can see that in the way that the pigment is used and in the way that these kind of this, the folds of a cloak or the, the folds of a, of, a, of a mantle are displayed and, and they just radiate passion. And to me, that comes across and they, it feels hot. It doesn't feel yeah. cool. It feels that it's devotional. And for me, d- devotion is not cold emotion. It's a, it's a hot emotion. Ah, such a great answer. That's excellent. (laughs) Okay, so I found out about a color from your book, and that is Fanta Black. Yes. Do do you ever think that will be a painting color? Because I think of what, how that could revolutionize painting. It would make all the black in paintings feel gray, you know, next to this super dark black. But I I know it's a technology, a little more than a necessarily a pigment. Do you, do you think that would ever go into oil painting? So oil painting, I mean, at the, at the moment, I can't see how it would ever be a, a kind of pigment that could maybe go into different mediums. Whether they can kind of tweak the technology sufficiently that it can be used in kind of regular paintings. I think the company that first created Banter Black have gone on to, to create a kind of family of super black coatings. Their hope is that they'll, you know, absorb similar amounts of the, the visible spectrum. So they'll be, you know, nearly as black as Banter Black and, and other the kind of the ultra blacks, but will be more resilient and you'll be able to use it in kind of a greater array of of use cases. So one of the examples that that come from this kind of family of of super black um, pigments from this firm in the UK was actually used at the Winter Olympics in Korea to coat an entire building. It was used on a pavilion by an architect called Asif Khan, who who worked with this, the company, worked with the the creators of um, of the original Black, and they used kind of a a sister product. And it was, you know, hard, it was hard wearing enough to be applied over an entire building. So Mm. that to me feels like that is kind of a, that could and can be used in in art. But, you know, Black, the original Vanta Black and, you know, I, I believe an even blacker black has now been created by MIT, I think, using kind of very similar um, technology. They are really uncanny in that they absorb so much of the visible spectrum, you know, 0.065 or something like that. And when you're kind of getting into sturdier, more usable pigments that absorb less light, will they have the same impact or will they feel like other blacks that are available? And also we were talking earlier about context, you know, you talked about fear about kind of the the context of colors. Will we be able to use super black pigments in ways that don't feel like a gimmick? I'm really excited to see what these, you know, these kind of family of pigments do when they're kind of, they're unleashed and they're more widely available. But I think it'll be a little while before they're not used as a kind of stunt, as a kind of like gotcha moment. Mm. And I I think it's really exciting to see what, when they're, if and when, when and if uh, they're ever be able to use in a kind of more studied, natural way that, somehow has retains that power but doesn't feel like a gimmick um and it's amazing because the technology i think you know i think it came out first in 2014 the first band to black and here we are now in 2021 and i i've yet to see you know i think this that building was really impressive sadly i didn't get to, to korea to see it but I've, I've yet to see although there's been so much talk about it i don't think i've really seen the fruits of it in any meaningful way but i feel like i'm still 
waiting for this power and almost maybe the anticipation is maybe it's the anticipation that's the most important thing and the fact that it's sparked co- such a conversation and such controversy and I think people are almost having so much fun with that that the the actual thought of of using Vanta Black in a in, in incredible ways kind of almost gets lost. Uh, but Anish Kapoor owns Vanta Black in some weird way right <laughs> but now there's a darker black so what is it <laughs> Yes, it created this whole art world spat, you know, much to the bemusement, I think, of the the company that created it, because, you know, they created it for this very specific use case, which was to, you know, it was initially developed to be used on the inside of satellite positioning systems. And then um, it was, it, you know, the press release came out talking about this ultra black and the world went crazy. And I remember speaking to the the founder of this, this company It's called Sorry Nanosystems. And he was saying, you know, we were getting like emails and calls from all over the world. They had a call from someone telling them that they must be like being used by the devil because only the devil would create, would help create something that black. Um, <laughs> so the whole world went nuts. And I think at that time, you know, it was a, it wasn't a pigment. It was you know this material that was incredibly fragile and that needed an awful lot of care and expense and expertise. And you know, he did this deal with Anish Kapoor, and of course, that has taken over the story since then. That's all when it when people talk about Vantablack, of course, they talk about Anish Kapoor and the ownership of color and whether it's right to own a color, and that's become the story. Um, which was not, I don't think, what anyone had envisaged when they created this. They were just thinking about satellites. Um, and then the art world got involved and craziness ensued. Um, so I think that's really funny and, and ridiculous and, and probably very confusing for them. But yeah, like I said, I'm really excited to see what happens when it's actually used and when it's kind of the broader family of products that uh, these kind of ultra blacks are able to be used more widely by, by artists. I have a question for both of you. I just want to ask you both. You're a painter, Marshall, <laughs> so I know you'll have <laughs> your own relationship to this word, but if you had to name the most melancholic color, hmm. what would it be? And also, what's the most joyful color? It's hmm. a great hmm. question. Who, who wants to go first? You should go first. Okay. Uh, well, actually a color that's in your book that I was happy to have to, that you wrote about in your book, because I think it's such an important color. I think the most joyful color to me, the first one that sprang to mind was lead tin yellow, very bright, very, uh, very sunny yellow. Um, and I don't know why I'd associate yellow with, with joy, I guess, because it's, it has some sort of the sun maybe or something or gold or whatever. And the most melancholic, well, I'm, t- I'm talking oil paint tubes cause that's all that I really think about. But I, I guess it would be like Davies gray. Mm. It's very smoky, very transparent. It just feels, it, fe- it feels sad to me when I look at it. Is that, that similar to Payne's gray? No, it's, it's, it's not dense. I think it's actually from grinding up um, shale or some sort of just like some mineral and it hardly covers. Like it's one of the most transparent, it's like terra vert in that way. It's so hardly covers anything, but it's just this very nondescript gray. Maybe it's slightly on the warm side of gray, but it's a really useful color, but that, that, those are my answers. 
Thank you. <laughs> I, I think I'd, I'd choose a yellow as well for the joyful one. And I feel like it's like it's yellow is a color that's come up a lot, you know, in, in I'd say the past six months. People have been talking about it as kind of the color of happiness, the color of hope. It seems to have come up a lot during, you know, lockdowns and coronavirus. People have talked about kind of the impact that yellows have on their lives. Like I spoke to one person and he was like, I just, I love yellow. And I asked him what he associated it with. And he was like, oh, the slice of lemon in my G&T. And I was like, that's the most British answer ever. <laughs> Who does? Um, and then someone else said, uh, said daffodils, which I loved as well. So I feel like yellow, I think that means joy for, for so many people, but yeah, maybe, maybe gin and tonic lemon slice yellow would be the color of joy in, in, in his honor. And in the kind of melancholy, I think of kind of glaucus, like, again, it's kind of like a misty gray color. Yeah. Mm. And, and when I think of kind of like the color of melancholy, I kind of tend to think of like sea mist in, on an, er in the early morning, you know? Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe that's because when I'm like up walking the dog wishing I was still in bed maybe that's what I'm, maybe that's what I'm thinking of um, but yeah it's funny that we've got sort of similar similar answers that immediately sprang to mind <laughs> what about what about you Sophia well I I'm with you there on the yellow I I think it's either that or green the kind of green that when you look at it's it's almost yellow but it is green it's when you look at the underside of a leaf through intense light Oh yes. So like that is really jo a joyful color to me. It makes you feel alive looking at it. It reminds me that I'm alive to look at it. I have a lot of plants in my house because of that. I want that experience everywhere. <laughs> and um, for the this the morose mer mer melancholy color is more of a red for me, like a maroon. Mm -hmm. Imagine like a a lizard crimson cut with phthalo green. And it's just this, like it's about to turn off to a brown, but it's not quite. It's just mm. so dark. I don't know that, like a bruise, heavy, like melancholy to me. Mm. There is a color that I love uh, called Chevening's purple brown. That's about that color you described, mm. just like this. And I could see it being kind of melancholy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> Thanks yeah. for <laughs> hearing me out on those questions. I think that was pretty fun. That was great. Do you, do you have a favorite painting that, or its use of color? That's a great question. It's hard to answer <laughs> off the top of your head. <laughs> it's a really hard one. Um, I think the one that immediately springs to mind is, is Sassaferrato's um, Madonna at Prayer, which is one of the ones that I was talking about earlier, where you have, you know, this um, picture of the Virgin Mary and she's sort of swathed in, in ultramarine. Mm. And you can, you can, if you go onto the National Portrait Gallery, or I think it's the National Gallery website, actually, you can, you know, zoom right in and just the entire, you just can fill your, your screen with the, this painting of her cloak. And, it, it it's very beautifully rendered and, and very kind of classical if you're thinking of the you know picture of the madonna that that's probably what something like that something very similar to that is probably what you're will, will come up in your mind but it's just such a finely rendered example and it's so beautifully worked and like i said it's, it's that devotion that you can see in you know in, in every centimeter of this of this painting and you know ultramarine was the was the color that when I was pitching, when I was doing my kind of elevator pitch for the book, 
it was the color that I used because I felt like, you know, you could talk about, you know, the sweep of history from Renaissance paintings right up to Yves Klein and you could talk about its, its, you know, material value. And so that color has an awful lot of meaning for me anyway, because it was the color that I used to kind of persuade people that I should get to write a book about this subject. And then that painting is just so, you know, so magical. Hmm. That's great. So, so would you say ultramarine is your is your color then, your color of choice? Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's the color that I kind of, it's a color that feels very, very special to me. But I feel like when people ask me my favorite color, I do feel like that changes. I feel like I'm, you know, like you, I'm lucky enough in my daily life that I'm working with color all the time. I'm looking at, I'm researching color stories. I'm looking at color, looking at different colors and I feel like I'm a bit of a magpie and that I do chop and change. And also I'm very attracted to color, the stories behind colors and maybe the colors themselves aren't that attractive, but the story is just brilliant. And, and vice versa, maybe you have a, a shade that is absolutely wonderful, but you search and you search and you can find nothing interesting to say about it apart from the fact that it's beautiful and that's really disappointing. So, you know, things like, you know, goose turd green, not the most attractive color, but you know, it's a freaking great name. You can't not love <laughs> goose turd green. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I feel like I have I have constant constant different favorites and colors that I you know lots of different colors that I love to talk about and, and love to think about. Well, Cassia, this is an absolute delight, I, and I can't thank you enough for the book you wrote. It has changed the way I think about color. It's given me little little bits of information to to you know throw around at the classroom and all kinds of things. It's just a pure delight. So thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and putting up with the seagull noises, which <laughs> really loud. <laughs> it really adds to it. I mean, we get to think of you on, on, a, on a really uh, picturesque beach, beach with the seagulls out there in England. It's amazing. Well, uh, thanks again. This was an excellent conversation. All right, this we'll is an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, thank you for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed this interview as much as I have. As always, feel free to call us and leave us a message at 929-267-4830. If you really enjoy our podcast, please rate and review us on Apple iTunes to show some love. It's free, and it only takes a few minutes. This is when we usually ask you for some donations, but I got something else for our listeners now. It's something I've been working on for the last few months, and I believe it will be very helpful for any artists out there. So what is it? Well, it's a video course. I've been photographing artwork for artists and galleries for almost a decade now, and I wanted to teach you what I've learned over the years, along with the wisdom of some artists that I admire. This course will focus on context photography, which is crucial for capturing your work for social media platforms. As you well know, it's not enough to just make good art anymore. You'll have to become great at presenting your work and sharing it on social media. I understand that a lot of platforms are pushing artists to create more video content now, so it's good to understand the basic fundamentals of photography first to create imagery that will really stand out. This video course will be available on September 6th, Labor Day, but you can check it out now at myangprojects.com. That's M-Y-A-I-N-G-P-R-O-J-E-C-T-S.com. I'll be using the proceeds from this course to finance this podcast so you get double the rewards. You'll get to learn something new and feel good about supporting us. How cool is that? If there's anything you would love to learn that you would like to be included in the course, feel free to reach out to me and I might add it just for you. Thanks for listening all the way to the end here.
I feel the love. Until next time, stay on the grind. Stand clear of the closing doors, please.